Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. If you've got a good enough product, a good enough message and a clear enough mission, then you can start small and people will try and support you. Oh, that's been our experience anyway. So I wouldn't ever let that be too daunting to you, the the thought of getting started, because it doesn't have to be. The Product Startup Podcast, Episode 16. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step. With your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. In the last episode, we talked with Dean Salakas of The Party People. 30 years ago, his mom was Patches the Clown, and she opened a party store in Australia. Dean and his brother took over this family business, and now they're the online market leader in Australia, and they're growing their brick-and-mortar network. Make sure you check out that episode if you want to hear more about how they partnered with brands like 3M and Avery on new product development. Before we get started today, I wanted to highlight one reviewer on iTunes, Ace Designs, who wrote, This is a great podcast for anyone looking to start a physical product business. Philip is a good interviewer and has a good variety of interesting guests. The content is very actionable, and it's great to hear about other stories in the physical product space. Keep up the great work, Philip. Thank you for taking the time to leave a review, Ace Designs. I really appreciate seeing what other people think of the show. So on to today's episode. Today, I'm joined by Luke Lucas from Fadi's. Luke owns and runs a startup food production business called Fadi's, and they specialize in the production of low FODMAP gluten-free and other allergy-friendly food that they sell online. Luke also quit his career in finance last year to open a cafe and retail outlet, and he's worked full-time in the business ever since. So what a great testbed, being able to validate food in a cafe and then selling what works through your online store. So let's get started. Hi, Luke. Thanks for coming on the show today. No worries. Thanks for having me, Philip. So can you please talk about your business and maybe how you got the idea for it? Sure. So Foddy's is a specialty food production business. We're the first business of our kind in the world, actually. Uh, We produce a range of low FODMAP, gluten-free and other allergy-friendly foods. Uh, You've probably not heard of the term low FODMAP before. Or or Foddy's, yeah. Or Foddy's, (laughs) yep. So the, the name Foddy's actually comes from FODMAP. Um, it's a, obviously it's a play on words, play on words of the FODIES and, oh, sorry, FODMAP and foodies. So we decided we'd combine the two, uh, low FODMAP, basically the, the short story is it's food that's suitable for people with specific gastrointestinal disorders to, to make a long story short. Um, and as I said, in addition, we do other allergy friendly food. Uh, the idea actually came up when my partner and I started dating. Uh, we are both foddies. We both suffer from uh, gastrointestinal disorders. Uh, when we were dating, it was a pretty ordinary experience. We'd you know go out somewhere, we'd have some lettuce and a glass of water, super romantic, right. you know, really something to tell the grandkids about kind of thing. Uh, but look, we, we thought that we needed to do something about it. So we actually entered into business together. Uh, and then, yeah, the rest is, as I say, is history, but it's only been you know, 12 to 18 months. So it's not a very long history just yet. That's great. So I'm sorry, how long have you been in business already? We actually started our online store first, and that was in February of last year. We opened our cafe and retail store in August of last year, so 12 to 18 months. So you can basically speak to the retail side of serving food and 
wholesale side of selling the food to direct to other shops and stores or do restaurants yeah. buy your food as well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they're very, very different skill sets and, and things that you need to be aware of are completely different uh, dealing direct to consumer and dealing with um, retailers and the like. So maybe we'll start at the beginning. So you, you realize that there was this issue that other people aren't providing the food that meets your needs that has these dietary constraints in mind. Um, where did you go from there? Did Chrissy have a background in nutrition? It's one of those things, probably in the biggest challenge for us, and we can probably talk about it in a little bit, but the biggest challenge for us is that neither of us have ever had any experience in the food and beverage industry at all. Uh, Chrissy is a nurse, so she did have a good background in terms of healthcare. Um, so she's a nurse and my background's in finance. I've always been in, in corporate finance, uh, but neither of us had ever even worked in a cafe let alone uh, run a business or, or a food business or had any kind of dealings with a, a corporate food business. Uh, so that was quite a challenge. But it was, as far as where we started, look, it was just diving in. I think we had an idea. We didn't know when we first conceived the idea how we were going to do it. Uh, and so we started talking to people about it. And someone actually suggested, suggested, why don't you wholesale? Why don't you look to wholesale? Because then you can kind of do it slowly and see if there's a demand there. Uh, and that's exactly how we started. We, we started approaching cafes. Uh, and then we thought, well, if we're doing that, we may as well have an online store because we're already making product anyway. And so then we started an online store. And we figured, you know, it's a pretty uh, easy approach. It's low cost, not huge overheads. It's a just-in-time basis where you're making food when you get an order. Sure. So you're not sitting on perishable stock or anything. And then we just kind of worked our way up from there. Wow. So you start making recipes in the kitchen or something like that and perfecting them? Yeah, pretty much. So that's where Chrissy has comes in. So as far as how the role, Chrissy is all responsible for the food. I get to take the credit for it, but Chrissy is the <laughs> one who's responsible for making it all. Uh, and that just comes from a background. We're both Greek uh, and being Greek, uh, it, food and cooking kind of runs in the family. So all of Chrissy's recipes are basically her or her family recipes, which she's brought in and we've commercialized and, and made money out of them, I suppose. No, that's excellent. Yeah, I lived in Athens for two years before coming to the States. Oh, so You probably put on some weight because they're not, they're not <laughs> shy with giving you food. Well, but you know what? You walk around a lot and, you know, we yes. can get into diet some other time. But yeah. So you perfecting recipes, were you testing them out on anybody while you were doing this? Or was it just basically the two of you guys that were going back and forth on... Is this a good fit for Napoli sauce or whatever it is? Yeah, so Chrissy is excellent. That's one thing that she's incredible at is making food and substituting ingredients and, and making a good quality product. But at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't matter what we think to an extent. The right. end user and the customer has to think that we uh, think as we do that it's a fantastic product. So, yes, we did try it. We predominantly tried amongst friends and family. Uh, we did it a lot of work colleagues. So I would take in some samples to work. I had a few offices that I worked in. So I would quite literally just hand around cookies and brownies and that kind of thing. And no one ever says no to a cookie or a brownie. Right. Um, yeah. So you just said, look, the only price is feedback. And we just got our feedback that way. No, that's excellent. One of the guests that we had on the show kind of did the same thing where he started a uh, beef jerky product and he just brought it to the bar and they would bring it to the bar every Friday night and they would keep bringing it until that were coming to the bar finally said, hey, listen, take my money. I, I just I just want a bag of it now. And that's when they knew that they had a good product on their hands. You can't argue with that kind of feedback, Ben. You, at the end of the day, we as an as entrepreneurs, we can think that our product is the next best thing, but it's it's ultimately meaningless if the consumer doesn't share the same opinion, which is stating the obvious. So that's great that you went out and tested it. Did you find that you were meeting more and more people that had some of the same issues as you as you got out there? Yeah, it was amazing when we started telling people that we were going to do this, how many people 
we realized were the same as us. I mean, you always have an idea and you kind of know uh, your mates, friends, sisters, uncles, brothers, you know, that kind of thing. But as we started actually telling people it really, they really started coming out of the woodwork or we we really started seeing that there really was a big demand. You hear statistics, they get thrown around and you're like, yeah, whatever, it's a statistic. You can find statistics for anything. But anecdotally, we started seeing and hearing of a lot of people that were really interested in what we were doing. Uh, and on social media, we saw it a lot as well because we do social media quite heavily. Uh, and that was kind of what kept pushing us and motivating us was the response that we were getting on Facebook in particular. And you talk a lot about motivation. I think that's really hard because when you first start it, you're basically by yourself. And after you have that initial hit of an idea and say, hey, let's do this, it's really exciting. And maybe the first month you have some struggles or challenges, it's really hard to keep going unless you have some sort of a positive reinforcement to say, hey, I'm headed in the right track or this is going to take off. And so I guess hopefully getting some of that feedback helped to kind of keep you going. Yeah, it did. And that was especially the case for Chrissy. I don't want to speak for her too much, but I was fortunate. This is actually my fifth business, my fifth startup that I've established. So I'd kind of been through the process before. I, I understood that things take time. I understood that a lot of people were a lot of talk sometimes, yeah. uh, and I understood how can you have your moments. You everything's going great, and you think this is I'm going to be incredible, and then you have your bad times when you're like, oh, this is just the worst thing. Why do we even do it? Um, so I kind of had that experience previously. Um, Chrissy, I think, was a little bit new to it, but she certainly learned along the way. But yeah, uh, you, you're absolutely right. It does give you that motivation, and no matter where you are, no matter who you've been, there are always down periods, and you do need that motivation to get through. That's great that you were able to find that. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you created your line from the beginning? I imagine you didn't start out with a dozen products. How did you pick that first one or two that said, okay, you know what, this is what we're going to enter the market with? We started with half a dozen baked goods, cookies, brownies, um, melting moments, and our peanut butter balls as well. They're not baked, but they're treats nonetheless. Uh, The reason we did them were because we wanted to set out to prove that you could make uh, allergy-friendly food that still tasted delicious. Uh, That was my thought process and why we did it. Interestingly, I think it was probably the wrong decision. Looking back, uh, people bought it and people loved it, but I I think I got it wrong thinking that that was what was important in terms of getting something that was really nice and sweet and delicious. People, or our market certainly, are are more conscious of what they eat and what they consume. Uh, So we very quickly realized that and we launched our protein balls uh, a few months later because they wanted something that was healthy. Now, our our, our treats are treats. They're, they're, they're treats. A lot of people think that our treats are healthy, but they're still treats. Our cookies are like any cookie on the market, uh, despite what people think. Uh, so we realized that we needed to do something and healthy, and that's where the protein balls came. So in a way, you, you found out more about your market that not only do they have these insensitivities, but they're also more health conscious than the average consumer. Would that be right? Yeah, probably more aware, just more aware in general of what they're consuming. So some are, yes, yeah, some are absolutely, some just are happy to eat whatever they can eat finally for sure. a change. But yeah, they're just generally more aware because they have to be more aware. But it, it was more a message to us that we needed to stay as a business nimble and we needed to be prepared to pivot and change uh, if what we were doing was either not working. In this case, it was working, but probably wasn't working as well as it could be working. Um, So it was a good message to us to start with that we needed to be prepared to think on our feet and move quickly if we needed to. That sounds like a great message for anybody whenever they're creating a product. 
So you created your first, say, half a dozen products and you went to market. Was this through your online store or the cafe as well? Uh, online store, yeah. Online store and wholesale. The cafe didn't come till about right. six months after that. So, uh, yeah, the online store and the cafe is how we were testing the market. And we were getting feedback from our cafe purchases as well about what they thought. And, and that obviously helped. What was some of the feedback that you got online that maybe you felt was really helpful to you? Or did you find anything that was kind of surprising that you didn't really know? You talked a little bit about the health conscious buyers and so you rolled out your protein balls. Were there any other type of aha moments that you found really helpful? Yeah, I think so. There were That was the main one. But the other one, which probably started then and has only grown uh, since we've done more things, is price points and entry points. There's a, a conception or a misconception, I should probably say, that people are... Okay, I don't... People are prepared to pay more for this kind of product. It's a specialty product. Therefore, people are prepared to pay through the nose to purchase it. They're prepared to pay a lot more than they ordinarily would be um, prepared to pay. There, there, there is that conception in the marketplace. And yes, to a point, that is true. But I am of the opinion, and I think we've learned from what we've done, that our market and our target are actually uh, annoyed and frustrated that they have to pay more. That's how they see it. There is an expectation, yes, it's not going to be as cheap as your mass-produced, off-the-shelf, anyone. People understand that. But I think a lot of businesses will try and take liberties and say, well, no, they're prepared to pay more, so I'm just going to charge as much as I possibly can, whether it's justified or not, just because people are prepared to, to do it. And I think we've learned over the journey that that's probably not the case. They actually resent that they have to pay so much more so we've tried wherever we can to be affordable. We still obviously need to make money. We are a business, but we don't, we're not trying to gouge our customers. We want to be value, um, but still have a quality product. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot in the United States. Well, you'll put the label of artisan on the front of something and all of a sudden it's, uh, it's you know, yeah, it's yep. handcrafted, but you, you know, you're questioning whether it really was. And exactly. you know, that's, so that's interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to actually dig in a little bit. You're selling your first product and you've realized now that you need to be competitive from a price perspective. How are you able to make product since you don't have as much experience in the food industry? How are you able to compete in that space? I think it's a, it's, it's a recognition that at the start, we're not going to be as profitable as we'd like to be. I think that's. Just, I don't think there's in our industry at least. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm not. Look, I can't speak for the states because I don't know. But in in Australia, it's it's very difficult to start a food business. Um, the the odds are stacked against you. The big players, and I'd imagine it would be the same. I can't see why it wouldn't. But the big players have purchasing power. They've got bargaining power. They've got access to research. They've got market data. They've got lots of money at their disposal. Yeah. Uh, so we we don't have that. So obviously, again, as I mentioned, our prices will be slightly higher, but they can't be too high. And that's just a recognition that, look, we're going to make a margin. It may not be what we'd like, but we'll go in with this price point and then provided we can get through the first 12, 24, 36 months, we'll then try to improve our margins by saving on costs rather than on the top line if that makes sense. We'll try and, and decrease our costs so we get an overall better margin, sure. but the price point stays the same. That That's kind of the approach. Maybe add some equipment or things like that. It's funny that you say that because the last guest that we had on the show, she started in the kitchen with a KitchenAid and then moved up to a larger mixer and then had a floor model type mixer. Yep. It was a step-by-step yep. approach to get to where she is now. And, and now, yeah, now she has good economies of scale. They're still creating their own product. You talked about in the U.S. about getting in the food industry. I'm not sure if this is in Australia, but 
we have co-packers here. Do you have those types of uh, companies at your disposal there? They're basically companies that have the approved regulations or that have been approved to make food in these types of markets. And you just basically come to them with a recipe and they will pack it for you with your own label and everything like that. Yeah, we do. And now that you mentioned it, we actually are looking at going down that route with our sources because the sources have probably been our best-selling product that we have, our line of sources, and we can't, we're struggling to keep up in addition to doing what we're doing. So we are actually looking at outsourcing the production of that. The issue that we have, and this is, this is all of Australia doing any kind of business, is that our market and our size is so much smaller than the states. One, you don't get a lot of choice. And two, price tends to be higher, especially when you're doing what we're doing, where we need our product to be gluten-free. Now, there aren't any manufacturer out there that just does gluten-free manufacturing, which means you need to find someone that's prepared to strip down, wash down all their equipment before the run, and then they're happy to do the run, but that means a higher cost. Um, we, We don't have a lot of options in Australia because we're just not that big. I mean, we've got 24 million people that live in Australia. Sure. I think New York State has probably more than that. So it, it it's, it's a very, very different market, uh, and that gives us – that is a challenge for us, uh, but it's something that we have to work within. Well, maybe when you expand over to the States, that's something that can help you and get a foothold here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are actually speaking to someone at the moment to try and make that happen. But, uh, yeah, it, look, that that is the ultimate goal because the reality is to achieve what we want to achieve – uh, we need to go global, and the the U.S. is probably well, not probably the U.S. is the best path and opportunity to make that happen for us. Now that's exciting. So right now you're basically producing all your own food yourself in your own kitchen. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the requirements in Australia for that? Yeah, so they're pretty stringent. So we there there is something called HACCP, uh, which is a global thing. It actually started NASA from memory started it for their uh, astronauts when they were making food for them. HACCP is the Hazard Analysis and Critical Control Point plan uh, where you try and make, well, not try and make sure, you you implement a plan to make sure that your food is prepared uh, and stored um, hygienically. Uh, otherwise, you've obviously got issues down the track. So we we follow that. We've got a plan in place for, the, for our products. In addition, we also have a plan that had to be put in place for our local council um, any local business needs a local food safety plan. So we've got two plans that we'll put in place, uh, one for council, one for uh, HACCP purposes. But in addition, uh, because of what we're doing, we have our own uh, safe food, food safety plan from a cross-contamination perspective in terms of dealing with allergens that we implement ourselves. Uh, we're actually speaking with the Celiac Society of Australia to get certified and we'll be one of the first businesses, if not the first business in our country to be certified uh, by Celiac Australia, which will be pretty cool. That's really exciting. So do you, do you have an indicator of, uh, I mean, did you do that just because it was kind of in line with the products that you were making already? Or did you say that, you know what, here's another part of the market that we feel is being underserved and we should kind of get into that? Bit of both. So we, the, the there's two markets that we service, I suppose. The low FODMAP market, That well, there's more. The low FODMAP market, the celiac or gluten-free market, and then all the other ones, lactose-free, dairy-free, egg-free, a whole range of different things. Uh, the, the low FODMAP market eats gluten-free, uh, but the consequences of them eating gluten uh, eating gluten aren't as severe as a celiac eating gluten. Sure. If a celiac eats gluten, it increases their chances of, of cancer and they, they react quite badly. It, it's, it's a pretty unpleasant experience. Um, so the, the low FODMAP market is different in that regard. But when we started doing that, we realized that a lot of celiacs were also low FODMAP and a lot of low FODMAPs were also celiacs. But we noticed, more importantly, that a lot of celiacs, or the vast majority, were complaining about 
one, their options, but two, how little it seemed that food producers and retail outlets and cafes, how little they cared about um, a celiac and, and taking their concerns seriously. Uh, that was probably the biggest issue that they had, not necessarily the lack of options, but the fact that they'd walk in and they'd say, oh, we need something gluten-free. And the cafe would say, yeah, that's fine. Um, it doesn't matter that it's cooked on the same toaster, does it, or that it's got it cooked in the same pan or that we use the same tongs or whatever the case may be. Now, that's not okay for a celiac. You do need separate dedicated workspaces, um, appliances, utensils. You do need to take it seriously. And we saw that pretty early. So we then implemented that um, because we thought that that celiacs especially would appreciate it, and it looks like they they do, which is good. That's amazing. So do you find that you have to have separate places in your kitchen for that? Do you just make a rule across the board to say, you know what, we're going to be celiac-friendly for all our products? It would have been easier for us to go gluten-free 100% on everything, but one of our, our our overarching mission is to unite and bring people together through the freedom of food choices. So when we looked at it like that, we thought that, people who don't have food allergies and intolerances would be forced to eat gluten-free, um, even though they may not want to. And there's a lot of instances, um, I don't know if you know anyone who eats gluten-free, but a lot of people will drag their partners or friends along to a place sure. where they can eat and the person doesn't really want to go, but they do it because they want to be a nice friend or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever the case may be. So we kind of wanted a place where you could come and have regular food and specialty food. So our menu has a duplicate version of everything. So you can have a Parmigiana regular or you can have a Parmigiana that's gluten-free and lactose-free. So you can have two people having the same thing but completely different at the same time. So, look, it would have been easier to go gluten-free 100%, but it, we didn't think it was consistent with the, the mission that, we, that we're, we're striving to achieve. Uh, but what that does mean, as you, as you alluded to earlier, is we do have a dedicated work service and prep area that's gluten-free. We have doubled our appliances. We've doubled our utensils. Uh, we've doubled Jeez. all of our uh, everything, our pots and pans. Uh, our deep fryer only has gluten-free products in it, so there's no cost contamination in the fryer. Uh, our staff are all trained. We make the vast majority of the food ourselves, so we know what goes into it. Uh, it, it is more work. Uh, it does it does represent a higher additional cost as well because you don't just have one uh, you know sure. salamander a toaster thing you've got two of them um, and that's across the board so it is more expensive to set up but we were comfortable that our our customers would appreciate that and from our feedback with them they they certainly do. It's really good feedback to get. So let's talk a little bit about how you found that this was the direction that you wanted to go and you've obviously grown your business in a kind of a step by step fashion. But right now, someone's listening to it and they might be saying, I don't have the resources to go all in in that way. They just see this huge wall. Can you talk a little bit about how you managed growth so it was sustainable for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we still are. And we're still having these same conversations. So the first thing I'd say is do not let that stop you. There is no reason you have to come out and bring the Coliseum to, to, the, to your business. It doesn't have to happen. And that's actually one of the mistakes that I made in my previous businesses. I invested a lot of money in a brand new shiny website and the best this and the best looking that and the prettiest that. And then I thought, well, now I've just got to get people to come and, and buy my product or, or take my service, whatever the business was. Uh, in this case, it was a bootstrap start. And that was, we, we cooked out of our home kitchen. The council came in and certified the kitchen because uh, you obviously have to. But outside of that, I mean, the website I made myself, I, I didn't pay anyone to do the website. A website, a good website designed in Australia at least will probably cost between three and $6,000 yep. depending on who, who you, you go with and what 
what functionality you have. I did it myself and it was free. So, I mean, it was $60 to host it and $40 to buy the domain and whatever, you know, it's hundred bucks. And then the labeling and packaging, I just researched it myself. We got plain paper bags and found someone who could print some labels. So the, the, the sorry, plastic bags, the plastic bags probably cost a couple of hundred dollars. The labels cost a couple of hundred dollars. Uh, and then the, I mean, the certification with council was a few hundred dollars all up. It would have been between one and $2,000 to get started. Uh, it's not a ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar investment necessarily. Well, it doesn't have to be. If you can do that, well, by all means, go for it. You, you might be able to achieve certain things a bit more quickly, but you don't have to. If you've got a good enough product, a good enough message, and a clear enough mission, then you can start small, and people will try and support you. Oh, that's been our experience anyway. So I wouldn't ever let that be too daunting to you—the the thought of getting started, because it doesn't have to be. Um, yes, it can be helpful, but it wasn't. We didn't need that for us. Um, we just dove straight in and grew step by step from there. That sounds really exciting. Can you say how long it took you to maybe get to, to the point where you were selling your full range of products on your store now? Has it been an evolution where you're adding a product every month? So our baked goods launched to start with on our online store. That was February. Our protein balls, our protein balls, we actually got wrong to start with. We launched uh, protein balls in the first couple uh, couple months after we launched the baked goods. Uh, we reworked them because we we actually didn't like what we ended up with. So we actually reworked them and brought out a whole new range in it two months after that. Um, then a few months after that, we brought out some dips. And then a few months after that, we brought out sources. Uh, so every probably four months, we've brought out a new range. Um, so no, it's not, it, we don't just, we didn't come out with 50, we don't have 50 products now, but we didn't come out with, you know, 20, 30 products immediately. Uh, as you said, it's a step-by-step approach because then we can manage it as well. We know what's selling, we know what to focus on, uh, and it just gives us a chance to wrap our head around what's happening. Have you considered at all about whenever you're creating a new product that we use these ingredients now in these products and maybe because we want we want to leverage that, so what can we make with what we're already using? Or is it the blue sky? Well, you know what? Here's this popular food product that everyone's eating and there's no gluten-free alternative for that, so let's chase that. Yeah, it's probably a bit of both, to be perfectly honest, probably a bit of both. The two examples I'd give with that, are the first is the dips. Uh, our dips that we launched, there are no dips that are low FODMAP. There are just none. Uh, certainly not the ones we do. They just don't exist, so we thought that right. needs to happen. Uh, but the sauces, which are the last product line we we launched, that was because of our menu. And that's actually one of the benefits of our model, having a retail outlet in a cafe, is we put food in front of customers and they eat the food then and there as they're coming to eat. Uh, and they say, I really like this. Can I buy it? And that's when we started saying, okay, well, if we put in a bottle, we can put it at the front of the shop and you can buy it. That's fine. Uh, and that's exactly how the sauces started. Uh, interestingly, the dips have been our worst performing product, which is what we brought out thinking we have to do this. Um, but the sources have been the most successful product, which we were serving as part of our cafe and our customers started telling us they wanted. So there's probably a hidden message in there that I'm beating around oh, the bush on. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I guess that if you look at it from a practical standpoint, I'm probably more inclined to buy you know two or three sauces that I can use during the week than a dip that sounds maybe like more of an appetizer. My wife and I might not have an appetizer during the week unless we're entertaining and the sauces may be more practical. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. You have to be in a mood. I want a dip. It's not one of those things that, yeah, well, I mean, look to an extent if there's one in the fridge and you're feeling sure. peckish, you might yeah go and grab a dip. But it's not one of those things. It's not versatile. You can't make pasta with it. You can't make pizza with it. You can't do a lot of things with it. It's just a dip. Um, and again, it comes back to that whole listening to your consumer. And you might have the grandest vision and think this is what we need. This is what they need. 
but at the end of the day, they think practically, they think their daily lives, and that can be very different to what you're thinking from a business perspective. So that's great that you have that cafe then. That's amazing because you basically have a live test bed where you could even roll out a new recipe and say, hey, today we're having this free special. All the tables get this new food product that you've created. And the only thing they have to do is ask your servers to make sure that you get that feedback. So you basically have people coming to pay you to test your product. Don't go giving away our market secrets now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but you're right. You're absolutely right. And that is exactly why we structured the model the way we did. And a lot of people yeah. said it's a lot of work. And it is a lot of it work. Is. We've got a wholesale store. Yeah. Uh, we've got um, our package products. We've, we do catering. We do ready-made meals. We run our cafe. We do do quite wow. a bit. We take on quite a bit. But as you've identified, we get access to a lot of real-time market information that our competitors don't have. And even existing big businesses, talking, you know, Cadbury and you know, the real Mars and all the really big food production businesses, they don't have that. And they have a very, very long, it's one thing I've learned, they have a very long lead time if they want to bring out a new product. It can take years. By the time they they formulate the idea for the product, then they get the first recipe and then they do their focus group research, then they do the first batch. And then after two years, they release a product hoping that it's going to sell. I mean, Coke Life, the the, the new Coke. You guys have Coke Life here? The, yeah. yeah. Coke will rebrand some items that might have the same formula, but by a different name. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's, it's this new, uh, it's in between Coke Zero and Coke. It's got less sugar than Coke, but more sugar than Coke Zero. That's their way of trying to get the more health conscious consumer. So they've, like, goodness knows how long it took them to bring out that product. It would have taken a very long time. And over here, it's absolutely diving. No one's buying it. It's just, it's a complete and abject fact. It's probably like New Coke back in the 80s. It's its a its sure. a pretty bad story. And that would have been a lot of money that was pumped into that. Uh, whereas for us, well, we put, we change our menu every six months at the cafe because that's what you do in the cafe. You keep things fresh. And as you said, customers come in, they pay us for our food. Then they give us the feedback. We get a new product that week. So it's it's a pretty advantageous position to be. It's it's more work, but we're happy to do it. I'm thinking about what it takes to run that type of business, and my head's starting to spin because running a cafe by itself is a lot of work. Making sure that you're on top of all the food that's coming in and managing customer satisfaction, and and that's a completely different type of business to your product based business where you're trying to get quantity out. Do you find that? Are the two businesses competing for your time in a way or are competing for resources or have you been able to duplicate teams so you're they're basically running parallel tracks? Yeah, no, that would be nice and maybe one day, but at the <laughs> moment, predominantly, it's myself and my partner, Chrissy. So we have the equivalent of full-time, the, the equivalent of two full-time workers. We have one full-time and a couple of part-time and casuals, um, but really, it's, it's predominantly just the two of us wow. and we work seven days a week. Um, we also work most nights. Um, the, it was it was hard at the start because in addition to having the cafe, which was breakfast and lunch seven days a week, we also did dinner service uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, so that was hard on our body as much as anything else. But look, at the end of the day, we're really passionate about what we're doing and we actually want to change the world. And in, as far as I'm concerned, no one ever changed the world working nine to five. So you you got to give something if you want to do that. Well, that's a good message for everybody. So I was just going to ask, I expected you to have a much bigger team than that. Got maybe four-ish employees. How are you able to recruit and make sure that everyone's happy and they're putting out good work and that it's to your satisfaction, but you're also able to run two businesses at the same time? Talk a little bit about maybe your recruiting strategy and how you're you're, you're finding everybody and creating even a company culture. Yeah, look, it's 
I think so to an extent. The culture is starting to form, but we made a lot of mistakes. That was probably the area where we made most of our mistakes is the people department. We started with the wrong team categorically. No questions, no ifs, no buts, no maybes. We had the wrong team that we started with. Uh, we, it has been a challenge finding people. And this, this, it, well, what's been very difficult as well is in the kitchen. Um, and it's been interesting because you think as a society, you know, things are changing, things are improving. But it's been very interesting that Chrissy being the head chef and being in charge of the food, uh, we've both noticed that there, it is more challenging for her because she's a female. And I, I was very surprised at that. But we I look in Australia, again, I don't know how it is in the States. In Australia, the kitchen is very male-dominated, very male-dominated. All the head chefs are, are, are guys. They're all the cooks are guys predominantly. Um, there, there has been issues with that, which has been quite interesting. Um, but we've learned along the way. So now we've had a year to, to fix all the mistakes we've made, more importantly, to learn from the mistakes. And we are, we now know who to look for. Um, and when we find the right people, we make sure that we teach them and, and impart on them what our vision is and what we're trying to achieve. Because we don't have the ability to offer the perks that a big business has. We can't you know, do a lot of those kind of things. But what we can sure. offer is a chance to make a meaningful impact on people uh, and to build a career with us. Uh, and that's kind of what we've been focusing on. And since we started doing that, I think we noticed that there was a lot more buy-in and the dynamic within the team uh, improved dramatically. And that's what we've been doing probably for the past six months. And it's been a lot more stable and there hasn't been anywhere near as many headaches as we had when we launched. Right. Yeah. So it may be setting the proper expectations. I was a engineering manager in my last job, and so I did a lot of hiring, and there was kind of the same story where we had a, a small company with less benefits compared to a lot of our bigger competitors, and we had to constantly push that message, here you wear more hats, and you're happier as an engineer, and you get to be more creative, and you're more hands-on, but there is no formal training program that's going to take you to be CEO in seven years, or you know whatever your goal yeah, is. Sure. And it's been hard and you pass up a lot of really good candidates sometimes, but uh, at the end of the day, you have a much better fit for your team. And I think we had a much more close knit team than some of the larger companies would because you're focusing on that part. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a negative. I mean, yes, you can't offer what the big guys can offer, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because the downside of going with the big side. And look, I mean, I've, I've worked in big companies before. I've worked sure. in some of the country's biggest companies. Um, the, the downside of it is that you're just a number. Well, that's the reality is you're just a number. And yes, you get career plans and you get this and you get development plans and all that kind of thing. But next year, yep. you've got a different manager because they've gone and done something different as well. So th there is a pretty big downside to going with that big business route. Whereas we as small businesses and as a, a startup that wants to do what we want to do, we you can be a part of something. And if you show loyalty and stick with us, if we achieve what we want to achieve, you can make a name for yourself. You can be a really valuable part of the team. And more importantly, if that doesn't matter to you, from a practical perspective, you will get much better and a broader range of experiences and skills than you would in a big organization because you've got so many people Absolutely. in a big organization, you get pigeonholed. Your job is to do job X. Uh, job Y and Z are completely beyond your job description. So if you ever look at that, you're going to get in trouble, get back to doing job X. <laughs> right. That's kind of the approach. Whereas if you're in a small startup, you know, it, it's nimble. You One day you're doing this and the next day you're doing that and then you're doing something completely different. 
it, it, it builds you as an individual and your resume, while the name may not be as impressive, your skill set is absolutely more impressive. So I think as, as startups, we need to be focusing on that side of the equation rather than the, you know, I can't give you your, you know, your corporate car and your, cor- and your travel card and that kind of thing. I can't do that. So I think we've got to focus on the positives. No, absolutely. And and that's the type of candidate that you want anyway, that you want someone that's self-motivated that's going to chase some of that stuff because you can't you can't manage them day to day in that to that capacity. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about you've you released your products online and maybe you started your cafe. Can you talk a little about your marketing strategy and how you did that on a shoestring? How are you able to kind of bootstrap that and grow? Yeah, social media. So that is now, unfortunately, if you're thinking about doing a business now, it is more difficult because of some changes that Facebook have made to their um, yep. pro- policies. Uh, but for us, it was entirely social media. That is how we grew our business. We grew our business from nothing all on social media. So we now uh, have about 6,500 fans and followers across um, both Instagram and Facebook, which have been our two um, big Great. platforms. Uh, a lot of them, a lot, it's all relative, I guess, but about 10% of those are actually international people we've reached internationally, which is great. Um, But for us, it was entirely social media and Facebook has been the biggest for that. Um, Instagram is good to showcase our food because it's obviously photos and it works. Uh, But the message that we're trying to sell is much more difficult to be conveyed, obviously, through Instagram. So that's why I think Facebook's been better for us. Uh, And that's where, again, I mentioned earlier, it's about finding your message, finding your mission and communicating that to your consumer because it's about freedom for us. And that's why our mission is all about unity through freedom of food choices. It's about freedom. It's not so much about the food. It's that feeling that you're not normal. It's that feeling of being that difficult person. It's that feeling of missing out on something. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's the experience and the freedom that people are missing. And that's where what we promote. So if we ever promote a, a photo of something, um, we don't just say this is our product. We say something along the lines of, we bet you thought you'd never be able to do X again. Well, this is a photo proving that you can. We bet you thought that you would never be able to enjoy this person's company because of this. We, we focus on that and the emotion rather than, okay, this is a picture of some sources, a big deal. It's about that emotional connection. Um, and while it is more difficult now to, to communicate with your fans and followers on Facebook, uh, if you're able to connect, then you'll get more uh, interaction. And if you get more interaction, then Facebook's algorithms will automatically put you in front of more people. So it's, it's more difficult, but it just means your quality needs to be higher. Yeah. And it's been really challenging, especially for me in the last eight months, I've noticed a big change yep. in how I can interact with fans on my page. It's basically, I don't want to say irrelevant, but that people like your page, it's not, it used to be that, that yeah, your information would pop up at the top of their feed, but now it's you have to fight for everyone, even if they've already connected with you. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can dive into a little bit of those uh, tactics, if you don't mind, some specifics on, on sharing. I know Facebook, for example, people bat around the idea that you shouldn't be sharing links as much as photos, or you should be sharing a live video more than text. Have you found any particular strategies that work for you? No, it's engaging content. I think it's a, it's a very simple, easy solution to say X works better than Y and you know links are better than this or they're worse than that sure. or whatever. But at the end of the day, our experience is an engaging post, whether that's in the form of a link or in the form of a, a sentence or in the form of a photo. If it's what our, our consumer and our fans and followers want to see, it will perform well. 
Um, it, it doesn't matter really what it is. It has meant that we have had to up our game in terms of our photography to make it more engaging. We've had to up our game in terms of our presentation to make it more engaging. Uh, but I don't think there's a silver bullet that one works better than the other. It needs to be engaging and relevant. Relevant is probably the biggest thing to what your your fans and followers want. Uh, it has to be relevant and it has to be it has to nail it. You're going to have some posts that don't do well and some posts that do better. I mean, that's obvious. But yeah, generally speaking, you have to be able to get what they really want to see. Part of being relevant is knowing who your audience is, right? Because in the, in the beginning, sometimes you might be mass marketing to a really broad group and that won't really help you because now the message isn't very clear. Yep. How would you advise people that are looking to hone in on their audience better? Let's say you've started a business and you only have you know a handful of face-to-face -face interactions and you're getting data and it's not really, you're not able to funnel that down into one picture of your audience. How would you do that? I think in, in that instance, if you can't get through it all, to an extent, you need to trust your judgment. Uh, you need to be prepared to make a call and do what you, your gut's telling you, but you also need to be prepared to admit that it's not working if it's not working. So Honestly, I don't think there's an easy way if you're in that situation. You need to make a decision and say, okay, I'm going this route. You need to commit to that route. If that route doesn't work, you need to change and pivot immediately. Um, and that can be very difficult to do because you can say, oh, but it was right. It's it's this and this and it should work. Well, it doesn't. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, as entrepreneurs, we have, and as startups, we have a big advantage over big business that we can change tomorrow. There's no processes and policies and people that we have to speak with. Um, we can wake up tomorrow and say, no, I'm going to do this differently. Uh, we have that ability. So I think people should not be afraid of, of, of being prepared to change. They should be prepared to try something. In this case, this is my message. This is what I'm going to go with. If it doesn't work, fine. I know it doesn't work. I'm going to try something different. I, I really, in, in the scenario you've presented, I don't know that there's really any other way uh, short of going through all the data that you've got. I, I don't see that there's any other way personally. Yeah, fair enough. How many people do you find would be valuable enough to say, hey, you know what? I've talked to, like for me, I think if you speak to 25 people, you should have a good idea of who your target audience is. If you actually have those conversations, it's not survey and not some data that you find online. You've actually went out and talked to 25 different people, by that point, you should have narrowed down your audience. Do you feel like there's a, it's a different number for you or that you found that as you increase in numbers, your audience becomes a little bit more complicated? Look, I don't know if I'd have a magic number as much. I mean, that number sounds reasonable just because of the number, but I guess so long as they were different kinds of people. Um, if people approach it as a checkbox activity where, yep, I've spoken sure. to my 25 people, so I'm good. Uh, maybe not so much, but if they spoke to, you know, three males, three females, three 60-year-olds, three 20-year-olds, if you get that kind of um, process, yep. then, yeah, you're probably getting around there. Um, but I think you just need to be prepared to talk to everyone about it uh, and as many people as you can. Uh, probably to, Once you get to the point where you start hearing a lot of similar responses, you're probably finding that's where you're getting to that point of saturation and you're not you're getting diminishing returns. There's no point going any further because you're getting similar stuff, whether it's good, bad, indifferent. Uh, that's sure. probably, and that, may, that number may be around that mark, but it may be different. Depends on the product. So you've marketed your product now. Obviously, you want to try to turn over as many leads as you can into buyers. People can buy directly through your website now. Are you shipping out product yourself? 
Are you literally going to the post office every day or they're coming by and picking up packages? Yep. So we do ship. So we started with our uh, Australia Post, which I, I think is your USPS. I yep. think that's what, so Australia Post is our, our equivalent. Um, we learned pretty quickly not to use them. <laughs> I don't know how, how yours is, but ours aren't great. Customer service isn't good. The way they deal with your packaging isn't good. Uh, so we actually found a site, another startup. They're an aggregator of courier services. So there's a lot of websites out there where you can compare um, insurance policies, car insurance policies. Sure. I'm sure you guys have them as well. Um, yep. It's like that, but for couriers. So you can enter in a job and you'll get 10 different quotes on uh, courier shipment. Um, so that's what we do now. So yes, we do ship. We ship out of our um, production facility, which is in Melbourne, um, and we ship Australia wide. And that's just basically through a courier. So a courier will swing through at some point, um, pick up the delivery and then take it for us. Wow. That seems like a lot to manage because you might be dealing with a whole handful of different couriers who have maybe different policies or is it basically the same thing for everybody and it's just a different face that comes in and picks up the package? Yeah, thankfully the guys we use keep make it a pretty consistent process. So for us, it's going onto their platform, it's booking in the job. Yes, we use different people, so we see different faces sometimes. Sure. It's funny, generally it's the same the same firm. For whatever reason, they've got better pricing in most places, so we tend to go with them. Sure. But generally the user experience from our perspective um, is fairly consistent. There were some teething problems at the start because um, they're a startup as well, so I think they needed to get their stuff together. Uh, but, yeah, generally speaking, it's pretty consistent and pretty straightforward for us. So do you find that your audience has certain expectations when it comes to buying and receiving product? For example, in the U.S., Amazon Prime is huge. People have now been conditioned to receive their packages in two days. From You, know, you place an order and two days later it's in your home. And even if your business is not on Amazon, now that's just this new standard that's been set. And they feel like if they don't have communication throughout the entire process, and if you haven't delivered in you know three or four days, then maybe something's wrong. Yeah, look, yes and no. I think we're, <laughs> as Australians, we're conditioned to accept that service is nowhere near as good as it is in America. Um, it just, again, it comes back to that size thing. We instantly roll our eyes and think, yeah, of course it's like that because it's America and we're Australia. Um, so we're probably lucky in that regard. Having said that, we do get our orders out pretty quickly, but we also communicate that we make most of our orders fresh to order. Uh, because we don't use preservatives in our food and sure. our our consumer, I think, likes that. So, yes, they may have to wait a couple of days extra, but they know they're getting something fresh and they're getting something that doesn't have any nasties in it, which they're usually prepared to wait for. Um, and in addition, again, Australia being Australia, we're quite big. Um, we have a lot of people in a small number of cities, but there are sure. there are also still people quite rural, and that just no matter what you do, it's not getting there in two days. It's just not going to happen. It's going to be five days, five, six, seven days, and they understand that. So we're fortunate in that regard that expectations are set pretty early. And I imagine you've got something on your site that says, hey, thanks for placing the order. We make everything fresh. Yep. Just spelling it out for them that way that you know, they're not surprised yep. when it takes that long. Exactly. If it that. It's just about communication. It's making sure that they're aware um, just so, um, and at the time, either before the time of purchase or at the time of purchase, just so they're not sitting there, as you said, going, what's going on with my order? Is it coming? Have they forgotten it? Have they lost it? Whatever the case may be. No, that's awesome. It's breakfast time here. So I'm feeling like I wish I could just hit the order button now and have uh, some, food, some food to try. <laughs> Might take a while to get to the States. That would be the right. <laughs> Thanks again for coming on the show and sharing all your wisdom. Can you give maybe one tip for a struggling entrepreneur or product founder 
that is at some stage of the process, maybe your younger self that really wants to succeed in, in selling their product, but they just haven't been able to make it. Do you have a couple of tips to, to kind of help push them along? The first, which may sound kind of upsetting, is you you need to be prepared to accept that there is a risk that you will put everything in what you're doing and you will fail. You have to be prepared to accept that and it sucks. And when you think about the work you've put in to date, when you think about the work that's to come, it's very. It can be very demoralizing to think that it's not. Go- it may not work. I mean, it's not going away. It may not work. There is. A, there is unfortunately a risk that it may not happen, and it can be quite difficult. And what you will find is you will think, "What if you'll 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 you can psych your, yes you can psych yourself out and think, "What if I do this and it fails? What if I do that and I lose all my money? What if I do that and my girlfriend breaks up with me? What if I do all these things?" And you focus right. on the negatives. What I do to keep me going and to keep me motivated. My, I, I have the what if as well, but I change what my what if is. My what if is what if I don't do it? What if I am lying on my deathbed and I look back and I think I never did that and I always wanted to, but I never did it. What if I don't give it a go? What will my girlfriend think of me if I don't do that? What will I think of myself more importantly if I don't give it a go? What will that mean? And that's what I focus on. And when I have that conversation with myself, I realize that it's not an option not to do it. As much as it's scary and intimidating and a lot of work, when I ask myself, what if I don't do it? I can't not do it. It's just not an option. So my single biggest, my single piece of advice, if there was just one piece of advice would be ask yourself that what if question, what if you went your whole life and never gave it a go? That advice definitely speaks to me. I actually started the concept of the site the day that my daughter was born because I realized that, oh my God, I'm in my early 30s and I've always talked about doing my own thing and I've done business competitions and I've won money and I've done all sorts of things that other people would normally say, hey, you're on a path, but it's never kicked off. And I've worked the safe corporate job and and never did anything. And finally, the day that she was born, I thought, oh my God, she's going to be 18 tomorrow and going off to college and I haven't done anything and I'm going to retire and I haven't done anything. And it is just this paralyzing fear that said, I need to get off my rear end and and do something. Yep. And since then it was just like a fire. And until then I was waiting until the right time or the right idea or the right, whatever the right circumstances, but really those will never come. Right. You will have to, you have to create all those opportunities. So yep. that's excellent advice. So thanks again, Luke, for coming on the show. Where it's where can me. we buy some of your product if we wanted to go out and, and get anything? Could, do you have anything that's selling in the States? Look, not at the moment. You would have to come out and fly to us and have a, a good shop around our store, which you're certainly welcome to do. Just say you've listened to us here and yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can do for you. Um, but no, look, in, in all seriousness, we are in discussions with someone, uh, another startup business in the States who are looking at, at importing some of our products. Um, and look, if that goes well, which we hope it will, our ultimate goal and plan is to get there at some point. Um, so hopefully our first imp- uh, export goes well, uh, and then we'll be able to establish a physical presence in the States, and then we'll have our production facility in the States, and then you'll be hopefully hearing a lot from us. And what about if you're in Australia and you just wanted to swing by? Yeah, if you're in Australia, we're in Albert Park in Melbourne. Uh, we have a physical store where you can uh, sit down and have a cab- uh, you can have a food from our menu. You can buy all the products in store um, in our food store, FODMART. Uh, and you can also buy online if you're in Australia because we do ship Australia-wide, um, whether you live rural, regional, or, or city-based. 
So you just go to foddies.com. That's F O D D I E S. F O D D, not foodies, foddies.com. F O D D I E S.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Perfect. And can people send you an email in case they say, hey, you know what? You're not shipping to my country, but I really wish you would. Uh, do you mind getting those emails? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So info at foddies.com is the best email to get in touch with us. Um, you can message us on Facebook. You can get in touch with us on our contact page on our website. But yeah, absolutely. And look, don't be afraid to do it because it keeps us motivated. It's one of those things where if you tell us you want it, it makes us want to give it to you even more. There you go. Luke said that you have to give him trouble. So now <laughs> everyone needs to send him an email and say... <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on the show, Luke. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. And that's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll put all the links that we've covered under the show notes on the productstartup.com slash episode 16. Last week, I mentioned that one of the most difficult parts of podcasting was that it feels like I'm talking to myself. So I asked you, what do you think of the format of the show and what would you change? Should I broaden the guests that we have on the show to get a variety of perspectives or should I just keep a laser focus on the creators of physical products? So I'd like to thank Eric Chang at joypulp.com who emailed me the following note. Stick to physical products. There's enough entrepreneurial creative podcasts that overextend into too much knowledge or data-based industries. There's enough written about those. I was only attracted to this one because of the focus on physical products. Eric, thanks again for sending in your comment. Do you agree or disagree with Eric? Please let me know. Eric recently launched a brand called Joypulp at J-O-Y-P-U-L-P dot com. And he's dedicated to designing and handcrafting high quality longboard decks. He's still formulating his MVP and working on some online marketing. So if you're interested in board sports or skateboarding, check out his site and give him some feedback. Join me next time as I speak with Damian Lee of Mr. Lee's Noodles for a truly inspirational episode. If you've listened to the show for a while, you'll know that I don't use that word lightly. Damien is an ex-Australian Special Forces member, a former city headhunter, a single dad of two, and a stage four cancer survivor who's in remission. He lost his latest startup, but cleaned up his diet to help beat cancer and realized that he loved noodles, but hated all the nasty chemicals. So he created his own healthy gluten-free pot noodle, which he'll soon start selling on university campuses through high-tech noodle kiosks. It's a really powerful episode that I think everyone will get something out of. So make sure you join me next week. So thanks again for listening to the show. I really appreciate your support. I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Valitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Mako Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Mako Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.